This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. You can't protect an idea in and of itself. Ideas have to be free. Everyone can have the same idea. But what is important is the way you express that idea. And because it could only have emanated from that person, it is what makes it original and what makes it worthy of protection. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. So I'm excited to speak with my good friend, Géraldine Blanche. Géraldine is completing her PhD in intellectual property law at the Sciences Po Law School in Paris. She was formerly an associate researcher at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Her research focuses on intellectual property strategies in the fashion industry. Geraldine holds a double matrice degree in French and common law and a master's degree in comparative law from the university. Université Paris 10? Yes. <laughs> she also holds an LLM postgraduate law degree in intellectual property law from the George Washington University Law School. Geraldine has practiced law for international law firms in Luxembourg, Paris, focusing on commercial and intellectual property disputes and advising fashion industry clients and lectures on fashion law and management, intellectual property law and fashion theory at Sciences Po and Parsons. Geraldine, thank you for making the time. Welcome to Politicology. Thank you, Ron. Bonjour. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Let's take a step back before we begin and talk about the evolution of laws protecting ideas and creative works. What do our listeners need to understand? Hmm. Um, I think the question of protecting ideas or, or creativity, at the heart of it is the question of knowledge and the power that knowledge holds. So um, if I were to give you a brief history, first of all, it's important to understand that intellectual property is inherently linked to Western philosophical ideas of property. So when today you hear a lot about, you know, things like cultural appropriation and criticisms of intellectual property, um, it can come and, you know, usually from criticism that say things like it's, um, it's inherently capitalistic. Yes, it is, because the history of it is deeply rooted in the capitalistic notion of property. So, Think if you think of Western Europe somewhere in like the Middle Ages, before the Middle Ages, where you had who held knowledge? So the church held knowledge. You know, the image of that monk who spends his entire life copying one Bible with like the candle, you know, uh, melting on the side until their eyes, you know, get burnt. Um, so knowledge was held by the church, and they held 
the right to copy. They had actually not so much the right, but they had the they were the ones who had the capacity to copy. Oh, wow. Every single time man has figured out a way to copy information knowledge more swiftly, more efficiently. There's been a huge shift of paradigm in society. So for a very long time, the power was held by the church because they had the capacity to copy. They held the copy. So they were the ones that decided what got copied or not. Everything was done by hand, right? They were the ones who were allowed to to transmit knowledge, to teach, et cetera. Enter Gutenberg in the printing press, right? Right. Okay, so this is a very fast history. But all of a sudden, the capacity to copy isn't held by the church anymore. Um, Lay people could potentially copy um, with the printing press much faster. What happened then, there was a shift in power, and the knowledge and basically censorship was held within not the church, but the head of state, so the king, right, all right? right? In an absolute monarchy system. And so the king would actually say, you know, you you know, to this printer, you are allowed to print this. I give you the authorization, the patent letter to print this, et cetera. So all of a sudden, the question and they would get revenue and the revenue would go back to in the coffers of the state, of the king. So um the people who would get money out of that creativity were the printers and the state. Uh. Not the creators. The creators. <laughs> so if you were a philosopher, you were a writer, you were a painter, how did you make a living? Because you didn't get a chunk of that money. You needed, you had a patronage system. Um, and because you had a patronage system, um, think of like Leonardo da Vinci that went, you know, to find uh, François Premier Francis I, you know, seeking patronage to actually have the money to live and invent and have the time to come up with amazing ideas and et cetera. So what happened was that there was a shift at one point. So enter the enlightenment mm-hmm. um, period and it particularly in France. And you had a lot of these philosophers who started saying, we want to be able to make a living out of our ideas because we are censored because of this patronage system. There are things that we can't necessarily say. Some push the agenda, mm. think of Rousseau, think that Montesquieu sometimes, but they very, they didn't make a living out of their, uh, out of their writing and their thought process. Wow. Um, there's the famous story of uh, Molière, who's a French playwright. Yeah. Um, and how did playwrights make money? It was basically people sitting down in a theater and buying tickets. That's how they made money. Because if the play was printed, they got nothing. And there's the famous story of Molière, who there's one of his plays um, that he refused to have printed. And the monarch completely bypassed that and said, no, no, it's hilarious. I want it printed, gave the authorization <laughs> of printing to a printer. And it meant less money for the playwright because people would then buy the printed version, reenact it among themselves. Because um, it was so good. Because it was so good, et cetera. <laughs> so there was the question of the autonomy of the creator who didn't have that much freedom. So in the enlightenment philosophy, like this is like really yeah, fast yeah, forward, yeah. right? But yeah, no, this um, is super helpful. Um, it, it, it was important. It became important to understand that we want to be able to make a living out of our ideas. How can we do that? Well, ideas are property, just like land is property. And during the enlightenment, you have a lot of thinkers from places like, the American colonies that spend time in Paris and, you know, thinkers and philosophers and all that. And so when 
the American independence came to be. Like the founding fathers understood that intellectual property was absolutely key to the economy, to the independence notion of and, and, and building an economy. There's a reason why intellectual property is stated in Article 1 of the American Constitution, Article 1, Section 8. It's massive. It's in Article 1 because it was deemed so important to building the country, to foster innovation, to foster creativity. And it was inherently linked to that individual notion of property, meaning I come up with my own ideas. I should be able to make a living out of them. And it's going to benefit society as a whole because State says basically, okay, you know what? You have ideas. I will give you a private right on that, Mm. but that private right will only last a specific amount of time for you to be able to make a revenue out of it. Okay. But then it's going to fall into the public domain so that all of society can benefit from it, get inspired by it, use it freely, et cetera. So you have (laughs) that in intellectual property. What I think is very important is to understand that you have private property and public property that it becomes after a while. So you have that balance. You seek that middle ground of like private and public because you need both. You need that incentive, but you also need a strong public domain. Without the strong public domain, people can't just like delve in and get inspired and freely take things to get inspired by and try out and reuse and better, et cetera. So uh, it's important to understand that Intellectual property as we understand it today is a very Western concept of law that was, that is so entrenched in the history, the Western history of property and the capitalistic, individualistic notion of property. So a lot of the criticisms you hear today, um, um, and it's, and it's, it's a very valid one because intellectual property laws are now, you know, you have international treaties around the world, you have intellectual property laws pretty much everywhere around the world. Um, and some people criticize it saying, well, you're imposing a specific vision of property Mm. on certain Mm -hmm. cultures that don't have the same notion of property. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and also a vision of property that in the grand scheme of human civilization is relatively novel. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And I'm sure we'll get to China later on <laughs> in this episode and how yeah. they approach the idea of intellectual property and the economic consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So can you talk about what type of work an intellectual property lawyer does now and what drew you to fashion mm. as a practicing attorney and then to academic research? Yeah. What did that What did that path look like for you? Um, oh, it was an interesting one. So what does an intellectual property lawyer do? <laughs> well, I mean, I have one and I'm really not sure. <laughs> um, I would, okay, very simply put, I would say you have to understand that intellectual property is, it's a, it's a whole, like it's a whole bundle of different rights. And so what you do as an IP lawyer is that you have, patents, trademarks, copyright, industrial design, you have all these different rights and you, um, you help people, corporations, et cetera, um, who seek to protect and gain property over, um, their artistic works or their innovations, et cetera. So you basically use this toolbox and see what rights fit, um, their potential type, what type of property they need. And then obviously you protect that property. Um, We'll get back to that probably later, but it's not because you have property that people aren't going to copy you. It gives you a right to fight them if they Uh, do copy you, right? Right. 
a lot of people go like, yeah, I need a, I need intellectual property so that no one can copy no. me. No, copying is unfortunately it's going to happen. Gonna happen. Yeah. It creates um, recourse. Exactly. For you. Exactly. So, um, so generally that's what an IP yeah. lawyer does. Right. Obviously, you know, contracts and yeah. litigation, and there are many ways of, of doing that, but there's it's that idea. It's like that, those bundle of rights and it's working on those bundle of rights and how long they last and how you're going to protect them, who owns them, if you're going to license them out to someone else, there's a whole strategy around it. So I've always been very keen and attracted to that notion of strategy mm. because on one given, I don't know, article or whatever object, you may have multiple rights in it. Think about a car. You've got potential patents. You may have like industrial design for the shape. You may have, you know, different forms of intellectual property. So there's a strategy to it. Um, now, why did I start working on fashion? I mean, I worked on a few fashion cases, but it wasn't the bulk of my work. Um, I don't really necessarily consider myself a huge fashionista or anything like that. It was very random. Um, I came back, I was working in Luxembourg and I came back to Paris and was looking for a job in Paris. And someone very randomly said to me, oh, you know, you're bilingual, you know, intellectual property, you can speak English um, because I'm French. <laughs> in case you couldn't tell. Yeah. And um, would you be willing to teach to a course in a fashion school to fashion creatives? And I was looking for a job at the time. I was like, that sounds just like the perfect thing to do on the side so that I don't go, you know, crazy with all the interviews, et cetera. So I thought it was a fun little project. And I started building a course. And I realized um, that there was very little written about it particularly in French academia, which about, to about me what? was about fashion and IP, ah. which to me was completely baffling because, you know, historically France, you know, yeah. is the birthplace of fashion, fashion industries. We know it, et cetera. And so I built this course and, well, first of all, I started teaching and I came out of my first class going like, why didn't I think of this before? <laughs> I love this. Um, it was such a high. Um, and, and I built my course and I realized I realized two things. First of all, that there was a great need for thinking about this, about fashion and IP, um, because fashion is such a great laboratory. Fashion is a child of capitalism. It was born in 19th century, early 19th century industrialism uh, period. It's, um, it is such a child of the 19th and 20th century. Um, it has all the components of all, first of all, it encompasses all forms of IP, all mm -hmm. these different tools that I talked about, um, from patents to copyright to whatever. And it also, um, it follows because it's so culturally, and we'll get back probably to the yeah. cultural and the uh, component politics, and the yeah. politics of it. Um, it is so, um, it is such a mirror of our society. So, so to me, it went actually beyond just law. And then the second thing is that I was teaching young creatives in an industry and it got me, first of all, if you talk to any creative, well, I remember <laughs> the first couple of years, actually to this day, it still happens, but I walk into the, you know, the first class and I can see students go like, oh my gosh, these are creatives. Yeah. Law, like yeah. a course on law, like shoot me now, this is going to be horrible. <laughs> and um, my goal isn't to make lawyers out of them. I always say that, like, I'm not going, this isn't law school. I'm not going to feed you hundreds and hundreds of pages of case law and whatever. The idea is for you to understand the importance of law in your creative process. Mm. 
to understand that you actually do own property, to question that, to see how relevant it is in your work or not. Um, and just for them to be a little less scared of legal jargon. I explained to them that it is a language and there's a reason why, you know, sometimes if you read contracts, only lawyers understand the contracts. Yeah. So I try to kind of bring down the fear around law to these creatives because um, they are potentially the future of creativity. And that's something mm. we, we, we might talk about a bit yeah. later too. The future of creativity. And if they don't know their rights and they don't know the legal system within which their creativity um, is, is navigates yeah. and, and works and builds itself, then they're missing a huge part of, of, of their future. I'm, yeah, go ahead. So, yeah. So that, that's the, that's the second prong for me yeah. is, is, um, and it's fascinating because, but exhausting at the same time, because fashion by nature has its own very fast timeline and it's constantly changing yeah. and constantly evolving. Yeah. Um, For better or in worse now. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, which, which to be honest, is a problem for my PhD uh. because every six months there's something new and I'm like, ah, I've got to <laughs> add that. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's. It's, I love it. So that's how I got into fashion. As I said, I'm not necessarily a fashionista, but I think it is such a fascinating yeah. laboratory. Yeah. Um, and it has to do with the past, the future, the economy, culture, politics. It has all of it. So initially, I my research was very much law-oriented. And I quickly understood that I needed to delve into an area that is called fashion studies that actually mm. emanated in the U.S. Okay. Um, and um, and fashion studies is it's very broad. It encompasses everything from history, art history, gender studies, um, cultural studies, um, and it deals with it's it's philosophy, it's anthropology, <laughs> it's sociology, it's um, semiotics. So semiology, the 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 science of uh, of signs, which we might talk a little oh, bit wow. about. Yeah. Um, which I, which was mind blowing to me because all of a sudden I realized that a trademark, like the little tag that you have at the back of, mm -hmm. of your piece of clothing, um, means something. It's a sign like any other. And that word that's chosen or that tag actually adds value to the piece of clothing you have. And it encompasses more than just the word or mm. just the, the logo on it. So to understand the value of a trademark, which is purely IP law, then I needed to understand the science of signs and oh the value of signs. So I have to say it's been great because I've been learning so much and I've been doing what I love doing, which is making like building bridges around all these different ideas and not just, it's not just about fashion and law. It's way more than that. I'm still processing the idea of, of, of ideas becoming property, but that, that, that itself was a sort of a, a novel concept for so this is the thing is that um, it's very difficult as a lawyer because very often students say to me, oh, I have this great concept. I have this great idea. I want to protect it. And coming back to that question of private property and, and public domain, one thing that's pretty constant, particularly in copyright law, is you can't protect an idea in and of itself. Ideas have to be free. Mm. Everyone can have the same idea. But what is important is the way you express that idea. Uh. 
and because it is unique to each individual. If you give two artists the same uh, the same idea, they will come up and they will express it in their different ways. And that is what links the work to that author. It's a very French way of thinking about it and from the Enlightenment, but philosophy. But it's the notion of that work of art could only have emanated from that person. And because it could only have emanated from that person, it, it is what makes it original and what makes it worthy of protection. So if, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah. So ideas themselves are, let me give you an example. Say um, I have an idea for of a story where a young man and a young woman fall in love um, in the midst of their two families fighting battles, right? Um, and you're going to think, yeah, Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. But that was... It, because Shakespeare decided to make a play out of it. It was a tragedy, a comedy, et cetera, et cetera. But that idea in and of itself is free. The idea of like young woman, young man that fall in love, despite a family, that narrative is free. Because what's going to happen is maybe someone's going to be, I don't know, a short film writer or, or, I don't know, a comic book or um, writer or, I don't know, a... Uh, a ballet choreographer, and they'll all come up with different versions and different interpretations of that same idea. So it's important that ideas be free in public domain. Yeah, You can't have everything privatized because then where are you going to get your ideas from? Yeah. So coming back to what I said, yeah. it's very important to find that. And it's my philosophy in many different <laughs> other areas, but to find that sweet, spot of balance between private and public. Um, it's a constant, constant battle and it takes time. (laughs) It takes, um, it takes attention, but, um, but yeah, I think at least the way the system works in, in our society today, I think that's important to understand. Okay. Let's turn to fashion as expression, as political, um, because one of the areas of culture that is so frequently misunderstood as apolitical is fashion, I think. Um, and maybe the best example of this uh, comes from the monologue Meryl Streep gives in uh, The Devil Wears Prada when Anne Hathaway's character uh, thinks that her life is apart from the fashion industry. Let's take a listen. Oh, Okay, I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue. It's not turquoise. It's not lapis. It's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. And then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Okay, so we're chuckling (laughs) and I'm 
just living because yes. I got to put the Devil Wears Prada on a politicology <laughs> episode. But yeah. well done, <laughs> how, Ron. <laughs> how accurate is this explanation of mm. the fashion industry, especially the size of the market yeah. and the jobs that it creates? Yeah. Why don't we start there? Yeah. And by the way, are we allowed to use that clip under the fair use doctrine? <laughs> <laughs> Not sure. Okay. <laughs> we'll see. You may want to check that one out. Okay. Talk to your lawyer. I will. <laughs> um, okay. So I love this clip because it contains so much information. I always- You know play, it. Yes, you know it well. Yes. I played to my students at the beginning of every <laughs> single semester. Um, it talks about, I'm going to pick out two things. Um, it talks about the industry and we'll start with that. Um, but it also talks about the- inevitability of fashion Mm. in a way. So first of all, you've got the industry um, and the jobs and the weight and the et cetera. Um, And also the time Um, because she explains very well. So it's a massive industry that started in the 19th century. It is a child of the industrialization system, whereby all of a sudden things are made in a series. Like you can copy it multiple times um, in a factory system, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a lot of people that you need a lot of people to cut, make, trim. Um, and then you've got, you know, the, the packaging and the sending and then the retail system, et cetera. You have a whole ecosystem that was, that emanated in the 19th century with the birth of, in, in this whole hope and in like of industrialization and the bettering of mankind through work. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And it still very much is the same today, only now it's global. It's not at the, at, at, you know, at the size of one country, but you're producing in China right. and you're shipping from China, you know. Right. So all of a sudden, going back to the thought that global economy would build peace because every single country interacts with the other economically. We've seen that in the past year, that that is not true. Yeah. Or actually with or the that, pandemic even before that, but it yeah. creates problems, right? And that era has, has come- Has come to an end. Yeah. And so the fashion industry today is, I started my PhD- I can't believe I'm saying this 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 many years. Five years ago, um, five years, and it is. I have to stop. I have to end this. Um, and I have seen the industry shift and change so much. So there's the number of people um, who gets paid what out of each piece of clothing, the mass of volume. Um, you've got questions, not just of intellectual property, but you've got questions of human rights. You've got labor rights. You've got environmental issues and environmental law that is playing a big, big role right now. Mm. And the industry is completely, and the pandemic really, really brought forward all these issues. And the industry is grappling, trying to find solutions because it is one of the most polluting industries in the world. Um, But as I said, it's a child of capitalism. So it has, it had all the benefits of capitalism for a long time. And now it's a great laboratory because it's got all the negative aspects that we know today. So in terms of, you can't just do away with fashion. Um, You gotta wear clothes. yeah. Yeah. So that's the other component of the clip. Oh, and one last thing about uh, yeah. the, the 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 industry and the economic aspect of it, which I think is important to understand, is the question of time in fashion. Mm. So initially, historically, at the end of the nine, like middle nineteenth century, you had a system of collections that started. You and all of a sudden you had this kind of pyramid thing where you had 
the haute couture at the top, and then whatever they decided, they had two collections a year, which was already a lot, and that trickled down to copy it, like people who would copy like easier versions of it, and then mass production at the end. So when she talks about you know how we chose this for you, and yeah. it trickled down to you know the 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 sales bin where you got the the sweater, the lumpy sweater. Um, that's exactly what we're talking about. The question of creativity being top to bottom, ah, right? right. Um, and not only that, but there's the question of time. How long does it take to go from the top to trickle down to the bottom? So it's called trickle down theory. Right. Um, so, but things have gotten completely out of control now because you don't just have two collections per year. You have like two haute couture and two ready and then another couple for ready to wear. And then sometimes you'll have the cruise and you'll have the bridal and you'll have, and all of a sudden you've got a system where if you're working for a fashion house or you've got to turn up how many collections a year. Mm. So how long do you have for that creativity turnover? Not, not a lot of time. Right. Um, So it's not just the question of sustainability in what people, for example, making in China in a factory, but it's also the people who are the creatives who come up with the designs. How long do they have to come up with new designs? And it's got to change every season. So you got to take shortcuts. And AI is a great shortcut. We'll talk about that later. Definitely get to that. Okay. Um, But then the second part is the question in this clip is the question of identity. And this is going to bring us closer to politics. It's the question of you don't care what you wear. You think you don't care. But actually what you're wearing says something. Whether you want it to say something or not, you are saying something. Mm. So if someone doesn't care at all about fashion, doesn't care about brands, doesn't care about, they're still going to be wearing something. And that still says something about them. So whether you like it or not, fashion is communication. They, They are signs. They are a language bringing us closer to politics because what you wear says something, communicates something. So mm. can I go into semi- yeah, semiotics just yeah. a little bit? Yeah. So semiotics is the science of signs. Um, and so I'm not going to go into the whole history of it, but bear with me for this. Like, so I'm going to give you an example of how semi- semiotics works. So for example, say the sign that I'm going to choose is a red specifically shaped blob. And that is going to be um, your signifier, what you call a signifier. So a red blob with a specific shape. And then you're going to take that blob and you are going to give it a meaning. And that is your signified. And the first signified would be, hmm, that red blob, specific shape is a heart. And you are communicating through that blob shape with a specific shape, the fact that it's a heart. And I can take it to another level, which is signified level two, if you want, which is that symbolizes love. Mm. So from a red blob with a specific shape, I'm communicating something, which is I'm saying it's a heart and I'm going to communicate at a level more. It's love. So let me give you an example in politics. Say I have a piece of clothing that is, that's worn on the torso, top of the torso, and that's kind of like green, khaki green. That's going to be your signifier. And what is going to be your signified? Khaki is military 
And it's going to be, and it's deemed that it is because it's camouflage, whatever, and it equates to military. And what if that green t-shirt is worn by someone like Zelensky? Mm. Signified level two, it means that they, that Zelensky positions himself as a war leader, as someone who is in war, who is at the top of the military and who is currently engaging and posturing and positioning himself as a leader in war. Just out of a piece of clothing that is a specific color. And what happens when he wears that in front of a bunch of yeah. people in suits? Exactly. Um, there's this fantastic, when uh, President Macron and the German Chancellor finally made it to um, Ukraine a few weeks ago, you have that image of Zelensky welcome, welcoming them. And he's in the middle in his like military uh, uniform. We can talk about the yeah. uniform, right? Yeah. And then on either side, flanked by classic politicians who are wearing their suits. Right. And I think that is a communication. Like I, I'm not a political strategist, but- But what does that image say to you? So that image says to me, um, there are two worlds hmm. in democracy right now. There's the world in suits and there's the world in- um, Fighting the military for its survival. World. Yeah. <sighs> there's the- yeah, there's the current understanding of like democracy, we're continuing democracy and someone who's fighting for it. When I see them side by side, that's that's what come up, that's what comes up to me. And yeah. politically, how is that not political? Yeah. That is so political. Yeah. And I mean, this isn't new. No. If you go through history, I'm a huge <laughs> buff of 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 British history. Um but I remember thinking way back when, um, you've probably probably seen movies about it, et cetera, the Tilbury speech by Queen Elizabeth I, mm -hmm. you know, with the British, the Spanish Armada. And she says something along the lines of, I'm going to butcher this, but um, I, I may have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart of, um, of a king and a king of England too. Um, and when she says that, so that's, that's what she says. These are words. They are a sign. They are communicating something. But in the imagery, she doesn't even need to necessarily say that. In the imagery through history, what do we have? We have a woman on a white horse wearing full battle armor. Yeah. First of all, apparently historically, I'm not sure, I'm not a specialist in this, but apparently she said this after the battle happened. <laughs> but, but there's a symbol, like the fact that she's wearing armor and that she's positioned herself on a white steed yeah. are symbols. They are signs. They are communicating something politically. And so historically that builds the narrative and that that's what sticks. The imagery and the symbolism sticks. Yeah. And you know what? Like, if you bring that forward to the 20th century, Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Do, do you know the, the 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 photo of her on that tank? Do you know this? Vaguely. Okay. So she was. This was in 1986, something like that. So uh, the Falklands War was kind of already passed, and she was up for re-election, and she was kind of losing a bit of steam. Uh, I, I, there was something about 
um, she was going to order tanks from the U.S. and people in the U.K. were like, no, you should be supporting, you know, British economy, blah, blah. Anyways, so she pulled this huge communication stunt Hmm. where she went to a NATO base and she met up with the German chancellor at the time was Helmut Kohl, I think. And there's this amazing picture of her with, she's wearing a trench coat, and she is wearing a silk scarf, you know, like knotted under her chin, a la Elizabeth II, yep. you know, and wearing these massive goggles. And she's in a tank. And her <laughs> head is like popping out of a tank. And she is like, she was like Elizabeth I wow. on that steed. And she was saying something. She was communicating something with her like little silk scarf under her chin yeah. on a tank. Yeah. That is communication. That is yeah. that silk scarf with the massive <laughs> yeah. goggle, military goggles on a tank. Yeah. Um, and it was the Iron Lady. And that is the strength, the power of what you wear. It does something to you as a viewer without exactly. needing to see any words. Exactly. It yeah, that's powerful. So one of the most political aspects of fashion then is the message that you can send, right? So I'm thinking of Billie Eilish getting the Oscar de la Renta house to agree to go for free, right? Before she let them dress her for the Met. And then there's, there's the Melania jacket, the, the, I don't really care. Do you jacket? Um, You know, we, we signal a lot with our fashion and, and one part of that is saying, Hey, I'm a part of this group. We're in this together. There's an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David uses a, a MAGA hat as a people repellent. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, that is fantastic because you're talking about two components of the sociology of fashion, yeah. which is belonging to a group, yeah. but also distinction. Yeah. They're the two. Um, and once again, in that Meryl Streep clip, you have yeah. that. Um, you want to distinguish yourself from, you know, the fashionista crowd. But at the same time, you're also signaling that you belong to the crowd that um, doesn't care. So those two things are intention. Exactly. Yeah. Completely. That is inherent to fashion, whatever you wear. So how are you thinking about the use of MAGA hats or, or, or for example, we're in France right now, the yellow safety vests here, right? As, As signifiers of political movements, signals that I belong to this group and everything that comes with that. Do you know where the the yellow vests come from? I think I do. Let me, okay, this is a good (laughs) quiz. I think that in France, um, most cars in the boot, the trunk, have an emergency yellow vest that you're supposed to put on on the side of the road if you run out of gas. And that signals to people that you need help. Is that right? Well, it's not just that. It's like for safety precautions, it's now mandatory that every car... Yeah, it's basically the same thing. Whether you're run out of gas or anything else, like if you have to stop your car, you have to immediately put on the vest and Got you have it. like a red triangle you have to put at the back to okay. alert, et cetera. So it's it's a safety precaution. It means hazard, I'm in trouble or exactly. something. Exactly. Right. And like, don't run don't, me over. Don't run me over. Right? Okay. Um, and it's mandatory. So uh, every don't car- Don't run me over sounds a lot like don't tread on me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So every car has it. Okay. When, what happened with the yellow vest movement, it started because government decided that on certain roads, they were going to bring down the speed limit from 90 to 80 kilometers an hour. 
for environmental reasons, for road safety. And that was kind of like the last, you know, the last on the camel's back for a lot of people who live um, outside of Paris, because very often in in the way France is viewed is that there's Paris basically, and then there's the rest of France, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of people who use their cars regularly, who, et cetera, were saying it's going to take us longer to get where we need to go. It's another, you know, 10 kilometers an hour is ridiculous. It's just like much more encroachment yeah. of government yeah. on, you yeah. know, our, on how we live our yeah. lives and how we go about it. You don't et really understand us. Get out of here. And it started from that. And it really was that kind of spark And so because it had to do with cars and people started saying, you know, enough of this limitation of, of, of speed limits, et cetera, they started manifesting with the first thing they have in their cars that defined them and that identified them as car users, the yellow vest, Ah, right? Because everyone has one in their car. And so it sparked from that, but obviously the, the, it was much bigger yeah. Than than just the question of speed limit. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. It had to do with um, price of gas, and it had to do with um, this separation between, you know, the people who live in the country who live and and, and who suffered as a result of globalization. A, exactly. Versus yeah. Parisians or yeah. whatever. So um, that's how it started. And it became a massive rallying symbol of the yellow vests. Mm. Um, And it was a huge, I mean. Huge movement. Huge movement with like very heavy protests, very violent protests, um, because a lot of people were fed up saying we can't live with the money that we, you know, with with our just our basic salaries. We can't make a living anymore. It was really an aggregation of a lot of frustration. Um, and let's not kid ourselves. Social media yeah, yeah. played a huge role um, in this and um, in the messaging and et cetera. But so a yellow vest, which is, which was inherently had an inherently utilitarian mm, function. Right. It was utilitarian. It was like for safety, road safety became political. And, that is such a fascinating twist, yeah. which goes to show, like, if you see a red hat yeah. from afar, yeah. you don't know what's written on it, and there's something kind of, like, embroidered white on it. But you assume. But you assume. Yeah, yeah. You assume. Nobody buys a, a red, a, just a red trucker hat anymore. It's not a thing you can so just you wear without there, there, there being exactly, meaning assigned to it. Exactly. Communication and language and the science of science. Hmm. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love my work. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to the Meryl Streep clip, there's this notion among some people, Steve Jobs was prominently in this camp, um, that you should just wear the same thing every day. What types of messages do people send when they make those choices? So you're talking about a uniform. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I have a funny relationship with uniforms because 
I grew up in the UK, uh-huh. hence why sometimes I have a British accent. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. <laughs> party trick. Um, <laughs> um, and I grew up with a uniform and then I went back, I went into the French system, which doesn't have a uniform school system. And then I went back to boarding school and had a uniform again. Um, as a teenager, I loved it because I wasn't, um, I wasn't, um, um, judged on what I was wearing, what brands, whatever I, I had the school uniform, et cetera, but it, it, uniforms themselves are hugely symbolic also. Um, and then I went to university and I was wearing whatever I wanted to wear. And then I became a lawyer. Lawyers in France have robes, um, and that date from, um, monarchy and it has a whole symbol around it. And it has a number of buttons, which corresponds to the number of years, uh, you know, Jesus lived, et cetera. So what? there's like, there's a religious what? symbolism. Yes. Because initially, um, lawyers emerged from the clergy, like the, 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 the quest, like lawyers, because they're the ones who held the knowledge, who had the capacity. Wow. To, yeah. yeah right. Anyways. Okay. So there's a huge, like even what I'm saying is a uniform carries a message whether you like it or not. So Steve Jobs that goes like, I'm going to wear my, I don't know, what did he, what sneakers? The, the, was, well, the white sneakers. The white sneakers, uh, the blue jeans, jeans and the then, black and the, and the back, black yeah. turtleneck. So he sees it as a way of not wasting time and not having to deal with that. Um, but he knows, because he was a smart guy, that he knew that that would become his uniform and that was his calling card, just like Zuckerberg yeah. and his and his hoodie, yeah. right? That entered the corporate world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I want to, I think this was one of the episodes recently, Lucy Caldwell, I think yeah. met, you were talking about um, CPAC and the youth CPAC or something. That's right. And yeah. she mentioned something. Um, the Turning Point USA, I think that was uh, yeah, perhaps. Uh, um, she used to go, it, we, we were talking about CPAC. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so she was saying the kind of uniform, the rallying call yeah. for all the young members of CPAC. Um, I think she says something along the lines of oh, the blue blazer, the blue with, blazer. With, with a go- and then the blue button down shirts yep. and then the, the, the khaki pants yep. or what like, yep. and that's still that is still very much like a Republican uniform. If you work in I politics know. and Republican exactly. politics, blue blazer, exactly. khaki pants, and, blue button down. Um, that's a uniform, and that it, everyone it's kind of like a rallying call. It's it's an understanding that you were saying this is what I am, and it's understood to be that. And then so you recognize your peers, and at the same time you distinguish yourself because you're smart mm-hmm. and you've got you know a blazer, and et cetera. It's more tailored or whatever. It's not as like yeah. lumpy or frumpy that yeah. you have like shoulder pads or whatever. Like there's a there's a strictness to it. There's a uniform component to it that um, means that you're one of you're part of the group. You're part I'm on of the inside of this group. Yeah. And at the same time, you're signaling to the outside world. So going back to Steve Jobs, yeah. even though he supposedly is very nonchalant and above above it all, if I were to tell you white sneakers, yeah. jeans, and under turtleneck, Steve Jobs. Yeah. There you go. So it's communication, it's sign in, it is so smart. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. 
If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.